0: This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute, the global public square for the business of space. Join us at interastra.space. And they said, here it is. It's a two man. John Napier is going to take you down and you just run behind it. You're the pusher and you jump in and then you just duck down, hold the two handles between your legs. And then at the end of the run, you're the brake guy. We'll slow you pull the brake, but don't pull it during the run because you'll kill us. (laughs)
1: I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever-inquisitive guests. We'll explore together, in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at kathysullivanexplores.com, You'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you. And also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to Explorers.com. What does it take to truly push the limits of exploration? My guest today, James Clash, has certainly given pushing them a good shot. Jim is a journalist and author who has dedicated his life to being what he calls a participatory adventurer. So far, he has ventured to the peaks of Mount Kilimanjaro and Everest. He's embarked on an exhilarating journey to the North Pole, flown supersonic in several jets, and even competed in the famous Iditarod Trail sled dog race in Alaska. Most recently, he got a really exciting hop with the Navy Blue Angels in their F-18 fighters. Today, you'll hear the story of the man behind these adventures and where my fellow explorer plans on going next. So, James Clash, Jimmy Clash, Explorer Club Pal, an associate of many years. It's a delight to have you on the podcast and finally have an extended conversation in a room with not a thousand other people.
0: Exactly. And, you know, Kathy, we've known each other since early 2000s when I think I did a story on you for Forbes when you were at Kosai. sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. So nice to chat.
1: Yeah. So I gave you a little bit of the scoop of how I like to have these conversations roll. You had a fascinating childhood. I know little bits about it from some of the pieces that are online about you. Born in Japan, if I have it right. You so, do. Take us back to your early days. How did you, how'd you come to be born in Japan? How long did you stay there? And you know, what were you like when you were 5, 10, 12 years old?
0: Well, my father was stationed over there as a civilian with the Army, and he uh, managed the post exchange, the PX. Yeah. So my brother and I were both born. I stayed there four years, and then we moved to Maryland, Laurel, Maryland. My father was at Fort Meade for a while, and then he left. He was doing the PX there. And then he left and went into private stuff. I was uh, a fairly adventurous kid in terms of geekiness. I launched model rockets, those SD's rockets. A friend of mine once and I climbed the water tower 150 feet up and launched up there. Of course, we lost it. We thought it would go higher because we were launching it from 150 feet higher. I was a ham radio operator. I started in, when I was 13 years old built my own radios with a novice class license. Then I got my general class, built my own antenna. It was an old ZL special, wooden antenna with bamboo and then wire on it. And I talked to New Zealand. It was New Zealand ZL. But I worked 100 and diff- 120 different countries by the huh. time I was 18 years old.
1: You came back to Maryland. And so it's in Maryland that you're ham radioing and building tall towers and all those sorts of things. What, what kind of kid were you at school? You know, in the beginning, I was
0: real goody-goody. I can tell you a funny story. In second grade, we did something called Queen of the May, which is, you know, the Blessed Virgins, whatever. And we vote for this most popular girl in the class. And I was at St. Mary's School, Catholic School, and I ended up getting the most votes. No guy yeah. had ever been Queen of the May. So I, I, had to. they had to take the second person, which was a woman, and the two of us had to go up and crown the Blessed Virgin. So I was a goody-goody. I was a sweet kid, but I was curious. I played, you know, boys club football. Um, I was fast, but I wasn't big. So I played like the fast positions. Yeah. When the big guys got me, they really hurt me because they didn't like being around them. But uh, yeah, I think I was a pretty normal kid. I went to public high school, was the track team captain. Our relay, 440 relay finished second in the state of Maryland. I was the third leg, so I was running the 100-yard dash in less than 10 seconds.
1: Were you still adventurous? Yeah.
0: I mean, I was always a curious person. Like, What's it like to do that? I wasn't a writer, though, when I was younger. I was a science major. I went to Maryland, University of Maryland, as a uh, physics major. And uh, it was just all math, and I lost interest. I took a creative writing course along the way and found out I was good at it, and I liked it. And I wrote short stories. I became the editor-in-chief of the literary magazine at the University of Maryland called Calvert, had a couple of my short stories published, switched my major from physics to English, big Hemingway fanatic in Fitzgerald, the old lost generation of American writers. And then I, uh, when I graduated, I, and I worked for the school newspaper, the Diamondback, and when I graduated, I went into journalism. It was an aviation magazine, by the way, called Airline Executive. Our big competitor was Air Transport World. And I worked on K Street in Washington. I thought I was a big deal. (laughs) How'd you Um, land the first job? It's interesting. We had to do a project in our field of study. and We had to interview a professional. And I went to this place called the Elizabeth where I was a lifeguard during the uh, winter indoor pool to make money because I had to pay my own tuition and everything. I lived at home and commuted to University of Maryland. And this lady came down there all the time swimming, and her husband was Joe Murphy, editor-in-chief of this airline executive. So I went up to their apartment, all scared and everything. It was a pretty fancy place. And I interviewed him, and he needed somebody to do some copy editing for his annual airline issue, the big issue like the Forbes 400. We, you know. yeah. And uh, I came in, and I did a good job, so he offered me a full-time job.
1: Cool. So how long did you stick with that? And you said in some of your online materials, you did a stint in advertising. You did a stint analyzing mutual funds. I mean, was that still all journalistic? Yeah. What happened was. Minor I, I, foray into investment banking.
0: <laughs> I didn't do that. My well, my, They make a lot of money. I don't, but I have a better life in terms of experience. No, what happened was I used to pass the Deep Pereira office. This was in '70. 980. And every day, this price of silver was going up. And then it dropped. And I said, I got to get in on this. I'm going to make a lot of money. So I went out and took a loan out with my father. And I bought a 100 ounce bar of silver for 2400 bucks. A week later, the price of silver went to 10. I lost 60% of my investment. It never really recovered. And I realized I need to learn about business. I'd never taken a business course in high school, college. I just that was, you know, Physics is cool, English, but that's crass business. And, and also this big MBA craze. It was on the cover of Time yeah. Magazine and, everything. and So I thought, well, I should go get an MBA, not knowing anything about it. And I applied to Maryland's night program, and I got in. But then my real goal was to go to an Ivy League school, because those were the ones featured in this Time Magazine. And my mm-hmm. People from my background don't go to Ivy League schools. We don't. And I got into Columbia. And when I went to New York, I'd never been there. I was scared because all the kids there were Princeton, Harvard. Bad dads were CEOs and stuff. J- last Jocelyn Javits was there, the governors, whatever. Yeah,
1: that, that would have been the daughter of the mayor of New York?
0: His uh, governor, I think. But okay. it was whatever. It was not the maybe it was the daughter, she had a daughter, a granddaughter, but she, okay. her name was Javits and, you know, they donate a lot of money. Came in New York. Um, yep. Anyway. So I went to business school and I majored in marketing and finance, but initially I just majored in finance because that was the cool thing to do. But then I started interviewing for jobs, banks, so boring. I said, I can't do this. I picked up the double major. I went into the ad business at Gray Advertising on the Procter & Gamble business, which was pretty boring in itself, but at least it was advertising. I was an account executive and I managed Puritan Oil and Duncan Hines chocolate chip cookies. When they rolled out that mess, the soft cookies which bombed, and from there I went to Ally Gargano, um, and I worked on the uh, uh, Pfizer business and the Dunkin' Donuts business. We made all those time to make the donuts ads back yeah, yeah. in the eighties. But but I had a side passion. I had a rock band called the VPs, and we had started at Columbia. We would satirize the business world with old songs from the 60s. Stockbroker on the line was love potion number nine. (laughs) Madison Avenue, man. There's an ad man who leads a life of danger. His brand manager couldn't be any stranger. Careful what you say. You'll lose your account today. Odds are you'll be on the street tomorrow. Madison. (laughs) It was all about the perils of having, you know, if you lose your account in advertising, you're gone. Right. And the band got famous for about 15 seconds. We were on The Today Show, Good Morning America with Ron Reagan. He f- spent a whole week filming us in New York, CNN with Ginny Mose. Oliver Stone called me for our material for Wall Street, possibly the movie he was making. I mean, we really, we were playing all the clubs in New York and we had groupies, you know, there were bankers and advertising, whatever. So it was, I learned a lot, Kathy, about business because I was the guy in the band who quit his advertising job to do it full time. So to do the band full time? Yeah, I was the drummer. Wow. Wrote a lot of the songs and uh, I had to send the records to the radio stations, call them, are you playing this record? What's it doing? I had to raise money on Wall Street. I raised a hundred thousand dollars for D H. Blair to put the company together to put out the records, the TV commercials. We sold it on direct response ads at night on CNN. Wow. And, and we did okay. I mean, it was a great gig. unfortunately, in eighty seven when the market collapsed, big stock market crash, all the yuppies that were buying our stuff it wasn't kind of funny yeah. it wasn't, so so I had a skint a stint in rock and roll. and then, from there, I went back to the ad business on MTV. I was helping with the MTV ads. At a Fred Allen was the agency. Yeah. And then I realized, I don't want to do this. I want to go back into journalism. That's my calling. And it so happens that this woman, her sister, producer with Good Morning America, worked at Forbes. And she said, do you want to get an interview at Forbes as a reporter? I'm like, well, how much? She said, you're going to take a big pay cut to do this.
1: So was it about journalism? I mean, that's an interesting moment where it crystallizes for you that this is a calling, not just, you know, one of several ways to do work and make make a living. Can you put your finger on what it was that spoke to you that really, what was it about journalism? Honestly, for me, and
0: this is in the very beginning, I went on to do the George Plimpton thing, but it was truth versus crap. and advertising, I'll try to envision it as a pyramid. And on advertising, you take a little point and you pile layer and layer and layer bullshit on top of it until you get this obfuscation of the truth or or whatever. And in in journalism, you do just the opposite. You take that crap and you try to narrow it down to a point, which is the truth. And I like that process. And I'd had it before and I was doing just the opposite in advertising. And I just felt like a shill. And so I, I made the move. I took a, a quarter of my pay to do it. But I was married at the time, and, and my, my ex-wife was very supportive of it. She was a banker. We had met at Columbia. I went for it, and it was, it was risky. you know. In the beginning, because I had an MBA, they hired me to do mutual funds and the stock market. But then I had done this climb of the Matterhorn, which was pretty tough. I was an amateur mountain climber on the side. Yeah, I had a, a side passion of climbing mountains. I climbed Aconcagua in Argentina, twenty-three thousand feet without oxygen. That really took it out of me. But I was right an.
1: Well, now how did that get started? I mean, you were. This is this is the follow on to climbing the water tower. Well, that was
0: the first time, and then as a kid, I Mount Washington. When my parents took us camping, and that was fun. And then I climbed Mount Mansfield in Vermont. And actually, the climbing began when I went to Jackson Hole for the first time, Wyoming with my my wife at the time. And we saw these mountains as we flew in. They, they call them the Alps of Wyoming. And I just couldn't believe I wanted to climb one of those. And there was an article by Ed Webster in Time magazine or Newsweek that I read on the way over about him climbing Everest. And I thought, man, I got to try that. So that particular trip I did manage to climb the South Teton, came back, climbed the Grand couple of times. Lori and I bought a place in Jackson Hole for summer. We rented it out.
1: Did you do some formal training or did you just kinda of cobble it together? Or you know, those are big peaks with a lot of, you know, hazard to them if you don't know what you're doing.
0: We did take a basic climbing class, of Mountaineering and Jackson Hole Mountain Guys. They were two competing services in Jackson Hole. But eventually I did work up to the Grand and then Mount Owen. So I ended up climbing most of the Tetons. And then of course feeding the rat, I had to go higher. And so it was on to and then it was on to Orizaba and Popocatépetl in Mexico. And then it was on to Aconcagua in Argentina, the highest mountain in the world outside of Asia. And I had to do that twice to get to the top, two years, which was awful. It's a three-week climb. And you go from like Eighty-five degrees at the bottom, sweating, and all, to the top it's thirty below zero. Three weeks to get to the summit, but you pack in. Well, and three clean. weeks between the traveling and getting over there, and then the acclimatization. We built up camps higher and higher to acclimatize, and then you know we got to the summit, and then we had to come down the mountain. It's more dangerous than going up. <laughs>
1: Well both because you're facing downward and because you're you're spent you're tired from the climb
0: exactly. you're tired you're lit you get sloppy and you slip and yeah. or you get cerebral or pulmonary edema and you don't know it and then yeah. you slip
1: down fast yeah say a little more about the rat that you're feeding at this point how, yeah. how do you think about that other than calling it the rat what what is that to you
0: well it was an experiment they did I think years ago where they would feed rats pellets and they would Want more and more of it because they got used to a certain dosage. I kind of was like drugs, I guess. And and so if I get to the top of a fifteen thousand foot mountain, I climb Mont Blanc. Got to be eighteen next, and so I kept going up. And when I climbed the Matterhorn, Forbes wanted a story about it for the back of the book. We had a lifestyle section in the front of the book. We told people how to make money. In the back of the book, we told them how to spend it. And so suddenly, I did that story, and the advertisers liked it because back then people started wanting an experience more than another boat to ski behind or whatever another summer house so they said well you can't just do mountain stories you got to do other stuff that's you know adventure and extreme and i thought okay this is george plimpton i am getting paid to do what i want
1: (laughs) your timing was brilliant sort of onset of the experience economy
0: Yeah, and and I read Seven Summits by Dick Bass, and that really inspired me. And I honestly think Dick Bass was one of the reasons why this whole thing happened. Certainly the mess on Everest. I have a good story about that.
1: 1996 mess?
0: Yeah. Well, I interviewed Sir Edmund Hillary in 95, and he predicted the mess in 96, the Into Thin Air thing, where those people were killed. John Krakower wrote about it. But I had climbed Kilimanjaro with Scott Fisher one of the guides on the expeditions that got, you know, people died.
1: and Scott died on the mountain in 96, didn't he? Yes,
0: thanks. Yeah. So when we got back, he called me and he said, look, John Krakauer just went over to Rob Hall's expedition. Do you want to come on as my journalist? Wait, now who has this called you? Scott Fisher. Fisher, okay. Yes, yeah, Scott. Scott, I just climbed Kilimanjaro with Scott. Okay. We got back in January of 96 and...
1: May is the time frame for Everest one, right? And so
0: he called me and he said, hey, uh, John Krakow, the journalist for Outside, he's decided to go over to Rob Hall's group, which was the other big guide in Into Thin Air, and would you like to come on as my journalist on my expedition? And I thought, Sandy Pittman is on your expedition, and she's going to get somebody killed. She was that socialite from New York, married to Bob Pittman from MTV. She was notorious. I don't want to get into all that because I really went off the rails and got quoted about her all over the place, Vanity Fair, because I think she got a lot of people killed. But anyway, that's a side story. And I didn't feel I was ready for Everest. And and Scott said, no, you are. It's a yellow brick road to the top. And I saw you (laughs) on Kilimanjaro. And I'm like, Kilimanjaro ain't Everest. It's a walk-up. It's high. It's 19,340 feet, but Everest is 29,028 feet. No. So I turned it down. I actually went to Tim Forbes, who was a mountain climber. And I asked him if he wanted to do it. He goes, no. no. So you saw what unfolded. Yeah. It those, far- for those who don't remember, there was
1: a, basically a massive traffic jam on the last segment of the climb. Too many people going up, trying to go up. A pinch point that used to be called the Hillary step. It's fallen away now. But that was kind of the single file one at a time point that you just had to get everybody through. And, you know, the pressure of these guys paid me to get them to the summit. And there was a guy that had tried a couple of times before and got to get their itis, which is a pilot, you know, is something that's always eventually going to kill you. And people kept trying to go up well past the time they should have been turned around and exactly. headed back in a yeah. storm came in. And
0: most all, eight or nine of them died on the way down. Sandy Pittman did survive. A friend of mine, Beck Weathers, was was climbing. I had met him on Aconcagua. He was good at altitude. We'd play cards at 18,000 feet because we were bored in the camp. And he'd always win, so he could think the best. And anyway, he was on that Everest climb, and he ended up losing his nose and his hands. And he was a, I think he was a pathologist. So, you know, there were a lot of injuries and deaths yeah. on it. and I think, I thought we might have learned a lesson from it, but we didn't. It just drew more people to Everest and a lot of amateurs who shouldn't have been up there, you know, the ones who go out and buy the the $80,000 in gear but didn't know how to use it and, and all that, and, and the real mountaineers like Conrad Anker and all those guys were just like shaking their heads. Well. But, same time they were trying to make money taking these people up and the sherpas the same thing so yeah well anyway yeah way, only way to make a living for the locals right there's the attraction yeah and, and they made all their money in the season the sherpas they were really underpaid
1: you've done an amazing i mean i love the way you title yourself that you refer to yourself as a participatory adventure writer right? mm-hmm. and it's, yeah, it's it's Walter Mitty, George Plimpton kind of stuff. In <laughs> States. The list that I know is climbing a lot of mountains, flying in any number of fighter jets.
0: You've probably piloted the same kind of jets I've flown in the back of.
1: <laughs> Once or twice. And lots of race car driving. I know just last yes. week, I think you were racing people. You were driving people around the track at Daytona. Yes. Um, how many more are there that I've missed? I know you you have a ticket to fly in space, right?
0: yeah, that's with Richard Branson and Virgin. I bought it in two thousand and ten and every year it's next year and now it's two thousand twenty three and Richard has flown so and I think there were some problems with the FAA and so they're I don't know if they're grounded, but yeah, my ultimate dream is to do what you did go into space, albeit suborbital because I don't have the kind of money to Elon Musk wants eighty or ninety million for a seat and but, yeah, I, I can tell you, I mean, I went bullfighting and broke three ribs with the Professional Bull Riders Association. I got shot with a thirty-eight down in Columbia, Bogota, to test the bulletproof jacket. It really hurt. I had a bruise for six weeks, but it worked. I bobsled it with the U.S. Olympic team at Lake Placid from the top of the hill, which was the most violent thing I've ever done. Really? I mean, I pulled nine Gs in an F-16 last March over Alaska, and, you know, with, with one of the— I. Was it Isles? Isles, Yeah. And the Bob said you're being jerked one way, six Gs, another way, five Gs, up and down, on the side, and you do 20 turns in less than a minute at 70-some miles an hour. Wow. I swear to God, it's the most violent thing I've ever done. You watch it on TV, it looks pretty easy. It's not. You know, it took me three years to fill out all the forms, get the EKGs. This guy, Sandy, was really wanted me to do it. No journalist had ever done it. And finally, I go to Lake Placid. Who was go Sandy? To Sandy Cagliari. He was like the head of some Olympic thing with the bobsledders and, okay. you know, practice every night up there at Lake Placid. And so I took a train up there, and I really wasn't sure what I was in for. All I know is I had all the forms signed, you know, death, whatever, all that crap. You know, I sign every time I do one of these adventures, liability releases. And we went up to the top of the hill and they said, here it is. It's a two man. John Napier is going to take you down and you just run behind it. You're the pusher and you jump in and then you just duck down, hold the two handles between your legs. And then at the end of the run, you're the brake guy. We'll slow. You pull the brake, but don't pull it during the run because you'll kill us.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, no, not that handle. (laughs) Yeah.
0: And I think that was the headline or something. Don't pull that handle. But but anyway, we went down. And I swear to God, after the first turn, I wanted to be out of that thing. I just did not want to be there. And I'd done a lot of stuff. And we get to the bottom. And this Sandy comes running. Well, how'd you think that was, Mr. Forbes Adventurer? And I went, you guys are nuts. (laughs) And he said, well, we're going to go back up. We see that there's all these cuts in your helmet. I said, oh, yeah, I was trying to look up. You don't try to look up because I was banging into the side of it. And I almost got knocked out once. So I said, no, I'm not, I'm not doing it again. They said, you went through three years of this stuff and you're not going to go down again? And then I said, no. And they said, well, Laird Hamilton came here, the big wave surfer, and he wanted to be a professional pusher. He wanted to go with the Olympic team. He went down one time with John Napier. He walked away. He said, no, that's not for me said, oh, okay, Laird Hamilton, huh? And then they said, yeah. And Chris Chelios, the Detroit Red Wing captain of the hockey team, he did it. Said it was like playing a whole game of hockey in a minute. And he wouldn't do it. He wanted to be a pusher, too. So they goaded me, actually, to go up and do it again. Because obviously, so I did. I went back up and I did it a second time. And it was worse. And I wanted to get out after the first turn. And when I got out, could not walk straight. For a few days, I was my equilibrium was screwed up. But here's the funny part John Napier was 16 years old, the guy who took me down, the Olympian. And we went to celebrate at the Mirror Lake Inn for a beer. He couldn't drink beer, he had a milk, and I had a beer. And this guy (laughs) had my life in his hands, and he's drinking a milk because he's not old enough to drink a beer. And so, but for your listeners, it is a violent experience. And, uh, you know, what else have I done? I skied to the South Pole, as you know, just the last degree and spent three days. that's 60 miles. Yeah, 70-something. There's yeah. not a – whatever. It was hard. It was cold. It was a summer. But we we were pulling 100-and-some-pound
1: sleds behind us. Yeah, and there's no such thing as warm summer at South Pole. It's, yeah. it's 10,000 feet elevation, for starters. It's Yeah, so we flew into that, and we were
0: immediately somewhat altitude sick because we hadn't, you know, where we were at Hills was at sea level. And, of course, as you know, the pole was nine to 10,000 feet up. And so we started skiing sick, throwing up and stuff, and and eventually we acclimatized. But the weather, you know, even if there's a 5- or 6-mile-an-hour wind at 30 below, you're going to freeze your face. You know you were down there. Yeah. I think we reached the pole on December 16th or something, and, and then the NSF would not let us stay in the building. So yeah, we had so- to.
1: The only station at South Pole is operated by the National Science Foundation right, and right. is very adamantly not open to adventurers who just need a warm shower. So if you decided to do this. You may, you picked this bed. Now you lie in it.
0: <laughs> well, yeah. And honestly, we were supposed to be picked up, but the weather closed in and we had to camp on the pole for three nights, which in, in retrospect was great because we got to look at the telescope from Caltech and the generators where they generate, and the funny story about this is, is I brought my first book, Forbes to the Limits, which you're in, I believe, and I I took it in my sled all the way to the South Pole because I wanted to put it in their library, and so they were very appreciative, and they said, "Look, if you give a talk at our mess, whatever transition yeah, hall, yeah, we'll let you guys take a shower." My friends on the expedition, like. Okay, so I gave, a, <laughs> I gave an hour to talk at the South Pole, left of my book, and they let us take a shower, but they certainly didn't let us. And also, the old dome there was almost covered up. They had the new barracks. But the good story there is, this goes back to my childhood, ham radio. I talked to KC4USN, which was the call sign for the Edmondson-Scott station on the South Pole, when I was really like 15 or 16. And I... Just got all these visions of what it was like there. I wanted to go there. The cold, you know, I'm a kid, curious. And it took me a long time to do it. But I I got on the radio down there on the South Pole because I wanted to give somebody else the thrill of talking to the South Pole. Unfortunately, the the static and the conditions weren't right. But at least I got on and called CQ. But that was in the old dome.
1: So how do you get all these gigs? I mean, you clearly have built considerable network of contacts, and it, it can't hurt to have the Forbes label behind you. But is it just rooting around and talking to folks and chutzpah come to you? I, a Forbes journalist writing about my expedition you know, could be a helpful thing?
0: Well, Forbes certainly helps. It's the name and in the beginning, they, they would negotiate with these suppliers for a good price. Like when I flew in that MiG-25 Foxbat up to 84,000 feet at Mach 2.6, and you know what that is, they were charging, I believe, $12,000 at the time. This was right as Russia collapsed and the military wasn't getting paid. So these companies, Space Adventures, negotiated a deal where their their pilots would take us up, civilians with a lot of money. And so Forbes, I think, negotiated it for $5,000, the flight, and they paid for it. And I went to Russia. And that was an amazing experience. And if I never go to space, at least I saw the blackness of space, the curvature of the Earth, and the atmosphere. Now, I can only imagine what that looks like from the space station, which you've seen, or the space walks. But it was enough to inspire me to buy that ticket on Virgin. Uh,
1: Yeah. Is Forbes paying for that, or is that No, no, that's that's, (laughs) funny.
0: No, that's, and honestly, all I've done is put down a deposit, which is refundable of of 20 grand. And it put me in line. And now I bought it for 200,000. The ticket now, I think, is 450. They raised the price. But people say, can you sell it? Nope, that's in the contract. So I have to go or get my money back.
1: So the other thing you've done is you've written about these stories where you've been the adventurer, amazing array of things. You've also interviewed, as mentioned a couple of times, interviewing me and, and other folks. Mm-hmm. I want to talk a bit about that experience. I mean, it's Martina Navratilova to solicitor Edmund Hillary, and you know
0: Neil Armstrong, Neil Armstrong, Armstrong.
1: John Walsh, who first led yes. a craft to the very deepest point in the ocean. Right. I'm curious, across all those interviews, if you step back, are there what do you find are common elements of people who've achieved? you know, some feet in very different arenas. Are there any, are there any common elements? And are there intriguing differences?
0: I asked that question of of different people, you know, the Explorers Club members that I've interviewed. And I think the most telling was, I asked John Glenn, what is exploration to you? And he said, it's curiosity in action.
1: Wait, that's my line.
0: (laughs) Well, maybe he stole it from you. (laughs) But separately, when I interviewed James Cameron, who took the submersible down to equal Don Walsh's record back in 2012, before Viscovo started doing, Victor Viscovo, who, by the way, just agreed to go down to Daytona, and he wants to do a ride with me. Yeah, that'd be cool. And so are you going to come down there one day? But, But anyway, he said the same thing when I asked him. He said it's curiosity in action. So I think that's one thing. that Most of these people are curious. Secondly, they never give up. I mean, I know how hard it is for you to get in the astronaut corps. And and honestly, how can I say it? You have to have a tenacity and never, you have to believe in yourself, in your dream. If I can go to that, when I was a kid, I saw Tom Sneva break the 200 mile an hour mark at Indianapolis. That was one of those Roger Bannister things. No one thought it could be done. Speed
1: of sound. Yep.
0: Yes, Vita Sound is another yeah, one. I've interviewed Jaeger, who that's a whole other thing. But but anyway, I saw that and I said, someday I want to do that. And my parents were like, yeah, right. Because you're basically in a go-kart with no top, doing a football field a second. And I spent 25 years in driving school and whatever – and I talked, this is the hoods, I talked Sam Schmidt, who was a car owner, any car owner, into letting me take his car out at Texas Motor Speedway. Now, I had done a lot of laps, so I knew, lead follow laps, so I knew the line, but I'd never done 200 miles an hour like that on a small oval. And, you know, the indie car people did not want me to do it. They tried to block me because they thought I was going to get killed. And Eddie Gossage at Texas Motor Speedway said, screw them i'll let you do it because i raised 25 grand for the sam schmidt paralysis foundation and racing for kids and that money really went to the organizations because eddie gossage donated the track time firestone donated the tires sam schmidt donated the car treadway racing was the pit crew and i went out and on the ninth lap i averaged 201.2 and that my biggest dream that I lived out. But it took a lot of tenacity, many times of failing, talking people into letting me do it, raising money. So that's the other thing I think about extraordinary people like that. Another thing is most of them really understand there's a difference between real risk and perceived risk. People always say, oh, you climbed the Matterhorn, how dangerous. And I'm like, yeah, it killed 500 people. But if you use your ropes and you do it right, you got a pretty good chance. But these same people go into Central Park and they'll climb a 60-foot boulder with no protection. If they fall, they're probably dead. So it's perceived risk versus real risk. Same thing with the race cars. I'm out there at Daytona at 170 miles an hour. Okay, if we get into a wreck, that car is built to take that accident, right? But the same people are doing 90 miles an hour in their SUV, cutting people off. You get in an accident at 90 miles an hour, you're dead. In a Coke can. <laughs>
1: yeah. Compared to a...
0: Racing car. Yeah. So, so again, it's perceived risk versus real risk. And I think if you can differentiate between that and these great people are able to do it, because as you know, I mean, every time you go up in a stunt plane or F 16 or fly into space on that bomb, in fact, you had the greatest quote. Remember, you said something like basically you're riding on a bomb, and if you do everything right, that thing will take you into orbit. You do one thing wrong and it's going to act like a bomb. Yep. yep. So, again, it's I think it's a four percent chance of dying on a space flight or something. You got to be able to re- assess that and deal with it. That's pretty. That's pretty high odds of getting killed, actually. But then again, there's people like Alex Honnold who climbed straight up El Cap or something with no protection, yeah. and in a movie which was really scary, but he survived. But that's that's not calculated risk. He's going to die soon if he keeps doing that. There's just too many things that can go wrong. So to answer your question, I think most of these great people who've done risky things are able to differentiate between real risk and perceived risk. All of the real deals, the ones I've interviewed, like Neil Armstrong and Chuck Yeager and Elon Musk. And and, I mean, I, I could just go Sir Roger Bannister, Edward Teller. They're all humble because they know what they did was the real deal. They don't have to bloviate like people like me who have to sort of punch up the resume because I'm not doing the Hillary step or becoming the first woman to walk in space or, or walking on the moon. I'm just trying to experience it and then write about it for my readers in such a way that they either can go do it themselves if they can, or they can live it out through my story. That's what I have to do. That's my job.
1: So you also interviewed Martina Navratilova and maybe other sports figures. I'm curious if you found similar traits. Tennis court is not the same adventurous environment in some ways as the Matterhorn or a submersible or a spaceship, but it's you know, it's a high achievement, high demand environment. Similarities or differences? Yeah, I mean,
0: they're all driven. And again, in America, we look at people and say, it's an overnight success. It's not. I mean, you know, rock bands. I also have interviewed a lot of 60s rock bands. I love classic rock. And, you know, Queen's Clare, they started out 10 years of screwing around in clubs before they ever made a single. So, yeah, they're all, how can I say, there's a lot of tenacity. I will give you one funny anecdote about something like that, that I tried, I used to have a Forbes TV show called The Adventurer. And after Sasha Cohen, the figure skater who won the silver medal for the United States at Torino, did that. And I just loved watching her skate because she she could do the artistic side and she could do the jumps. And she fell twice in her long program and still won the silver medal. I wanted to know what kind of tenacity it took to get up and keep skating. And so before the show, we started talking. She goes, Jim, I know you drive cars fast would you would you take me out and show me how to drive a lamborghini i said yeah if you give me a skating lesson (laughs) so i took her out in the lambo she had it up to 130 on the 405 in no time that was the dangerous part of the of the story correct well i went to the Alisio viejo ice palace never been on skates in my life ever and she took me out and the forbes video crew was there the whole thing and she's pulling me along, and it's kind of neat. And I said, well, you know, I'm the Forbes adventurer. i got to do a spin. And she's like, Jim, I don't think that's a good idea. Uh, <laughs> and so she said, well, if you really want to try, crouch, swing your right arm like you're going to punch somebody, and you'll go around. Okay, cool. Next thing you know, I wake up in an ambulance. Uh, I have fallen. I have a level three concussion, blood all over the ice. I was knocked out for two minutes, and I, I don't even I couldn't remember my name or anything. And to the hospital, and um, I spent the night, and I learned that be prepared. Don't screw around with an Olympian when you don't know what you're doing.
1: And <laughs> and when and they, they would, advise you to maybe not try that, maybe you don't want to try it.
0: <laughs> right, because I, you know, had to push, pushy, right? And I didn't assess the risk. And you hit ice, it's like concrete, as you know. And, and anyway, the good part of that is Sasha, her mother and her daughter, her sister be- became good friends after that. And uh, Natasha, her sister, interned for me at Forbes. Uh, Sasha, first kid, she had me become the godfather of her first kid. So we made lemonade out of lemons. Oh, very good. Still a very good friend of mine. And uh, But that's an example of something like Martina, where it's not, it's not climbing the Matterhorn, but there is risk. Now, tennis, it's a different thing. I mean, to me, there's the old Hemingway quote, The only real sports in the world, and this is back in his day, were bullfighting, auto racing and mountain climbing. The rest are games. And his point was that if you, you know, climb mountain or go bullfighting, I've done all of them, you know, there's a lot of risk, physical risk. Whereas if you play tennis, yeah, you hit the net twice and you you lose a point or golf, you know, you land in the sand or whatever. But so
1: there's no life changing consequence, really.
0: Yeah, it's. I mean, when you get on a rocket, okay, that's not playing tennis or golf or so. You got to be willing to accept the consequences from a, a death or dismemberment or or paralysis, which is the worst perspective. And and so I think when you make that, when you do it, and like when I finish that two hundred mile an hour lap, there's a feeling of a different feeling than if you won a tennis match. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm. Martina was lovely by the way. And and here's the thing about her, we were talking again just before and she told me she had driven 200 miles an hour on the autobahn. <laughs> and, and at first I thought she was talking about 200 kilometers an hour because she's European. She said no, 200 miles an hour because I've driven 209 on the autobahn and 201 and if there's a story somebody wrote the 10 fastest speeds on the autobahn, I hold 5 and 7. <laughs> In a roof Porsche, and it was the scariest thing I've ever done in terms of driving because the Autobahn, there were traffic, and we had to, you know.
1: We've yeah. out. Yeah. So, we we'll want to come back as we come towards the end here. You yeah. also get to talk to a lot of younger people. Maybe you've kind of touched on this through what we've already talked about, but how do you? what do you distill down for them as a couple of words of advice as they're trying to figure out how to sh- how to shape my life, how to pursue my dreams, face life's challenges. What kind of advice do you give them? Maybe top three.
0: Yeah, I do a lot of talks. And, and you know, I, I always say, number one, pursue your passion in life. Figure out what it is. Don't just do it for the money or what people think tell you you should do. You know, when I got out of Columbia, there was a lot of pressure to be an investment banker or to stay in the ad business and make a lot of money. But my passion was was really curious adventure stuff. and So I think that's one thing. But, but be realistic. Like at my age, I'm not going to suddenly want to be in the Olympics as a figure skater. That's not going to happen. So be realistic. And number two, you know, work hard because you never know. What's that saying? You know, the harder you work, the luckier you get. You know, if you're in that position to take advantage of the lucky break you get, then you get it. But if you if you don't work hard enough and you're not in that position, then so I tell them that they need to work hard. As far as peer pressure, just if you think differently, don't go along with the crowd. If we have time, I do have a funny anecdote about that. But yeah, I would say, you know, pursue your passion, be be diligent about it assess the risk versus the return in anything, a business decision or a career decision. And I have stories about that too, but yeah, um, I I think that's it. I mean, nowadays with the kids, I don't know, they just seem to want to play video games and I don't know, you know, it it just, you got to have that uh, curiosity in life, not just adventure.
1: So what's that story?
0: (laughs) So, this goes to Alaska last March. And, you know, the U.S. Air Force does something called the cool school. And it's you've probably done it yourself, but you have to learn how to survive in the Arctic if you have to eject over enemy territory in Siberia or something, whatever. And so we had to spend three days. I was with pilots, real pilots, and I was embedded as the journalist to experience what it's like. And, you know, we had to make our own shelters and cut Logs and it's 30 below up in Fairbanks because it's March, it's still cold. And anyway, it wasn't fun, but I did it in return for an F 16 flight. I said, Look, I'll do this if you give me, because I knew they had F 16s up at Ileson. And they said, Deal. So I'll get two stories out of it. So anyway, we're on this thing and we had to set rabbit traps for food. And we get to this point where we went to look at the rabbit traps and there was all this little rabbit dung, little pellets in a hole near where the rabbit trap was. And the guide, the pilot picks up and he puts it in his mouth and he starts chewing it. And he's like, yeah, there's a scent of pine in here. And, you know, this (laughs) rabbit close. I'm just looking at this guy like you're a rabbit poop. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And then he said, I want each of you to taste it. And they go one by one. They put it in their mouth and they start chewing on it. And then they got to me and i said, i'm not doing that you know the peer pressure i'm just not doing it and they said oh come on jim you know you got to experience this and finally they said oh it's just chocolate we played a joke on you this was we put it in here earlier <laughs> so they played a practical <laughs> joke on me and, and for me you know it was it was interesting the peer pressure i didn't bow to the peer pressure but that's my point with young people, don't always bow to the peer pressure. You do what you think is is right. And in high school, that's kind of what I did. So, yeah, so you know, I mean, I got a million stories, but we don't have time for them. But I mean, I have lessons in life stories at Forbes. If you want to hear a good one of those, you can edit these out. But give us the lesson in life story. So, you know, I was a journalist at Forbes, just started. They make us fact check when we first start. I even had to fact check Trump once, but that's a whole other story. So you fact-check, and then you write your stories on the side, and you compete with the staff writers and the other people. And if you get your stories in the magazine, then you eventually get promoted. So I had been there about five months, and I had written this story called Survivalist about Mountain Travel Sobek an adventure company, and and, uh, the rafting company. I'm sorry, Mountain Travel and Sobek, And they both got into financial trouble, and they had to merge, even though they were sort of competitors. So I went out to California and I wrote that story and Forbes had a gym and I'm upstairs in the gym getting dressed next to the managing editor of Forbes, a guy named Lawrence Menard. I didn't even know he knew who I was. And he goes, Hey, Clash, I love that story you did about that rafting company, whatever. He said, I'd really like a story about mountain climbing, which I do. And here's the backstory. When I finished that story, About mountain travel. So they asked me to go to Antarctica to climb Virgin Peaks on the Palmer Peninsula, which to me, oh my God, I've never been to Antarctica. Virgin Peaks, we get to name them. So I pitched it to the editor of the section, the life section, a guy named Bill Flanagan. And he just looked at me and he said, I think our readers are more interested in bikinis on the beach and those kind of stories. He didn't turn it down, but he basically did. So my dilemma is I'm up in the gym managing editor, he basically says, I want you to come down and pitch me that story. Because I said, oh, well, I have this idea. But the crux was, at that moment, I had to make a decision. Is it worth the risk of alienating that section editor by going over his head to the managing editor? And at that point, I thought, I really want to go to Antarctica. It's worth it. It's worth the risk. And I told Menard about that story. And he said, come down to my office, pitch it to me, which I did the next day. And immediately he turns around, you got it, pal. And he starts typing a note to this other editor, the section editor. I'm like, oh, my God, I didn't have a chance to tell him. I walk up to the section editor's office. He looks at me and goes, okay, you can go. But as far as I'm concerned, you're screwed here at Forbes. And that was the section. But what I found out later is that Laurie Menard, the managing editor, at one point worked his way above Bill Flanagan, the section editor, and Bill Flanagan had been really bad to Lori, So Lori was using me as a- you were a pawn. But it worked out for me. Yeah. And it, that's right. a career decision I had to make, spur of the moment. And and I went for it. And I think for me, it worked out because I became the adventure writer at Forbes. But you don't, you know, you never know.
1: never know. Well, Jimmy, it's been great talking with you. Thank you so much for your time. And I hope some of my listeners will- Look up more of your articles and in your books, because there's some great, many, many, many more great stories to be told.
0: Well, you don't even have to put this in, but I'm pretty close to getting that Blue Angels flight in the F-18. Now I'm at the process of having to get the medical stuff done, so I have to go get a physical and all that. But I would love to do that, because I've been in the 15, the 16, the MiG-25 Foxbat, the C-130, the T-38, I mean, I've been in all of them. The pilots always look at me like, what? Because they haven't been, but they fly the planes. So I'm I'm lucky in that respect. I've gotten to do a lot. And again, I think it's because of the Forbes name and my tenacity.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I can't wait to hear about your Blue Angels flight. Hope it works. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to com. This podcast is brought to you by the
0: InterAstra Institute. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most everywhere podcasts are found. To be the first to know when the next episode drops, head over to innerastra.space.